the law of God and confess our sins, we are again reminded of the promise of the gospel, the only reason that we are here, which is that our sins are forgiven in the name of Christ. This is our hope and this is our comfort as we come to worship Him this morning. Let us now open the Word of God that He would teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings 5, and we'll read that chapter. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away, turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please 
Let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There has, have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 138, stanza 3. Helped by having your Bibles open. There are details there that uh, you can easily miss the first time reading through, but they will come up in the sermon. So if you're the type that wants to see it there and not just believe me, which I encourage you to be, then, then have your Bibles open. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in this chapter, we see one of the most surprising and memorable instances of God's grace reaching out to totally unexpected people. Uh, People in nations far away, far outside of Israel, not accustomed to, uh, not expecting even to see God's grace, and, and of whom the people of God never expected they would receive God's grace. It's something that We can easily forget when we read the history of Israel and God's relationship with Israel that God all along has always had His eyes set on the nations. Uh, We see this multiple times in the Old Testament. and, And this is one of the starkest reminders. The commander of the army of Syria, God has His eyes on him to bring him to the knowledge of His grace. Now, it is a complex story with a lot of of characters involved and a number of important lessons for us to learn. There's also these two halves of of the chapter. There's the story of Naaman, and then there's the story of Gehazi, and and they have to be kept together. The story reminds me of, of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son 
A story of amazing grace to the son, right? Who had walked away and lost all his father's money and ends up eating the food of the pigs and finally returns to his dad and gets God's grace, gets, receives his dad's grace. But then there's also his older brother who doesn't get that grace, who doesn't understand God's grace. And you see that also here with Naaman and Gehazi. And so as we consider this story of God's grace to Naaman, we'll look at five important lessons, and they're in the bulletin, that we can draw from this chapter. The first thing we want to see is that when God reaches unexpected people, He does so in the first place by seeing right through human strength and human power to expose human weakness and human neediness. It's something that makes all of us uncomfortable because we tend to look towards people of power and admire that and we want ourselves to be thought of as, as people that, that have it together, people that are a formidable force in, in the world. But God sees broken and needy people and those are the only kinds of people that God sees. God sees right through our strength to our weakness and our neediness and our desperation for God, and He exposes it when He seeks to reach a sinner. This is almost always the first thing that God does when He reaches out with His grace. He exposes weakness and neediness. And that's what we see here in in Naaman. Look at the contrast that's painted uh, between Naaman and the servant girl in in verse 2. Think of the things that you read about Naaman. He was commander of the army of the king of Syria, a great man, it says with his master, in high favor. And then just in case you didn't get it, it says one more time, he was a mighty man of valor. There's the picture you get of Naaman. Everything about him says strength, might, position, influence, a powerful man by human standards. But what else? One last word in that verse, it says... He was also a leper. A leper. And that one single thing undermines everything else that you know about Naaman. He was a leper. Now, leprosy in the Bible is not the same thing as as what's called leprosy today in the medical community. It was at that time a skin condition that caused the skin to become white and and flaky and blotchy. And it, it could be fatal and it was highly contagious. Uh, It it could be more or less serious in different people. Some people lived with leprosy for for decades without without dying. Uh, For Naaman, his leprosy was apparently uh, not so serious that he couldn't at least function as commander of the army. That's why he still has this title. But it would certainly have been uncomfortable, ugly, painful, and and obviously a, a debilitating condition. And that's what Naaman needed to be able to turn to God to look for God's grace. Without that leprosy, Naaman would never have been saved, at least speaking from from a human perspective. When God calls people to Himself then, one of the first things He does is He breaks down their show of strength and power to expose their weakness and neediness. Proud people have no access to God's grace. It's for needy people and only for needy people. 
I think this text also wants us to compare Naaman with, with this servant girl in verse 2. We don't even know the girl's name. It's not even mentioned. It says that she was a little girl and she worked as a servant to Naaman's wife. And everything about her life is the opposite of Naaman's life. She was a person that had no control at all, even over her own circumstances. She was kidnapped in a raid by the Syrian army. Probably her mom and dad were killed in, in that raid. And, and her little life was just swept away by this massive Syrian army far, far outside of her control. She would have been taken to a foreign land to have to learn a new language, and she would have spent the rest of her life as a little slave girl. And yet, here's the thing, God used her to bring His grace to Naaman, to get healing for Naaman that Naaman could not get for himself. God used the weak to shame the strong. Everything in this little girl's life was unfair and out of her control, and, and none of it was, was her fault. It wasn't her fault that the raid happened. It wasn't her fault that probably her mom and dad were killed and that she was now living in a faraway land. None of this she brought upon herself. None of it was in her control. And yet, just as God had a plan for Naaman and his leprosy, we see here God had a Special plan for this girl and her circumstances. She was right where she needed to be in God's plans. I want the little girls in in this congregation to, to hear this and to get this. No matter how small and how powerless you might be or feel, God does not need your strength. God does not need human strength and power to accomplish His purposes. God works through those who trust in Him and obey Him. And He uses the weak and the small to shame the strong, the big, and the powerful. He uses the humble faith of little people to accomplish great things that are beyond the reach of the most powerful people in the world. We see this amazing uh, contrast here in these verses. So that's the first thing we want to recognize when God reaches into the lives of people to whom He wants to show His grace. He exposes their weakness so they would know that they are needy. If you think that your strength, your intelligence, your insight, your influence means that you are in control of your life and you can access God's grace by your strength, you've got the whole thing backwards. Your, your strength will not obtain God's grace. He gives it to those who know that they cannot earn it for themselves, that they are needy. He uses the weak to shame the strong. The second thing we want to recognize is that when God reaches out to unexpected people, He often does so to test the faith of those who already are His people. And in this chapter, Israel did not do well on that test. When Naaman heard about this possibility of being healed by Elisha, he went to his king, and, and his king sent a letter to the king of Israel. And, and when Jehoram, the king of Israel, got the letter, he despaired. He immediately saw this as a pretext for war. It never even occurred to him to at least pass the letter on to Elisha. 
So here's another contrast. Here we have a little servant girl who knows the power of God and the king of Israel who doesn't, who doesn't realize what God can do. And, and remember, this is Jehoram. We've seen him already several chapters now. And, and he has already seen the power of God. It's not that he didn't know who Elisha was or, or who God was. He's seen Elisha working. He's seen God's power. And he's undoubtedly heard about other things that Elisha has done. But here he receives this letter and his gut instinct is not to say, oh, we have a God in Israel who can do powerful things. His instinct is, there's no hope here. This man must just be seeking war with me. He tears his garments in despair. Now, you might say, well, yeah, okay, but the king of Syria could have at least you know, mentioned Elisha's name, because he doesn't in his letter. He just says, here's a man, can you cure him of his leprosy? Uh, but, but here's the thing. The king of Syria heard this little girl mentioning Elisha's name, this little slave girl. He would have assumed the king of Israel ought to know who this man is. If a little slave girl knows, how could the king of Israel not know? And that's the question we want to be asking as well. How do the people of Israel, the people in the positions of power, not know who their God is? And and that contrast there then between... Jehoram and this little girl is there, I believe, so that we would ask ourselves the same question. Do we know God's power? Do we have the same confidence in God that He is a God who does mighty, miraculous things? Is our confidence like the confidence of this little slave girl? Or is our faith more like Jehoram's? When God extends His grace to unexpected people, it always challenges the people of God as well. When we are faced with sin, with stubbornness on the part of someone who who, who does not yet know God's grace, do we still believe in the powerful, transforming work of God? Can God change people? Do we believe that when we see people that need changing? If a sinner with, with a most degenerate lifestyle were to walk through the doors of our church, would we take one look at that person and say, there's no hope for them? Or would we say, we have a God here in our midst who can turn their lives around, who is powerful to save? Do we go to God in the case of our own members, our, our family members, our colleagues, or others that God places in our lives who need God's grace, do we pray to God in a way that shows that we believe that He can work powerfully in their lives? And you might say, well, yes, but we've, we've tried that. We've tried praying to God, and God isn't answering those prayers. And, and for many of us, that may be true. We may have prayed many times. And, and to be sure, the same was true for, for Jehoram. There, he, he could say, yeah, but God hasn't healed every leper in Israel. Why would I believe God would heal uh, this one? But you notice with Jehoram, he never even tries. He doesn't consider going to God and asking for God to work powerfully. 
It would have been the easiest thing for him to, to simply say, well, we have this prophet Elisha who claims he can do it, so you, know, you can go knock on his door and see what he can do. But he doesn't even do that. The power of God was so far from his mind that it never even occurred to him to refer the man to God's prophet. His reaction, in the words that he says, his reaction is theologically correct. He says, am I God to be able to heal a leper? He's right. He's not God. He's theologically correct, but he's practically all wrong. He doesn't try God's power. Yes, you're not God, but you do have a God in your midst who can do what this man is asking. So the second lesson that we should learn from this is that when God reaches out to unexpected people, He always tests the faith of those who are God's people. Let's turn back to Naaman now and and watch what happens in, in his life. The third lesson we should learn from this chapter is that when God reaches out to sinners, He demands a humbling of their pride. This is the hard lesson that Naaman was going to have to learn. We can only imagine the scene in in Elisha's uh, little humble village of Dothan. Uh, This this entourage of Syrian chariots and and horsemen all show up at his front door. And and as the top dog in in, in Syria's military, Naaman would would have been the sort of figure to just command deference and respect. And so he would have sent servants to go knocking on Elisha's door, you know, come out, the commander of the army of Syria requests to speak with you. And Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him personally. Do you notice that? He sends a messenger out of his house to go and talk to this man at his door. To Naaman, of course, this would have been a deep insult to not even be allowed to see Elisha in person. But this is what he needed to learn. He needed to realize that in God's eyes, he is not some top dog, some powerful man. He is merely a sinner and a Gentile sinner at that, estranged from God and without hope in the world. He needed to realize, that's who I am. Naaman was not ready. You can see by his reaction that he was not ready to realize that. And so it shouldn't surprise us that that everything about this encounter offended and angered Naaman. It says he stormed away in a rage. And and he explains exactly why he was upset. There's basically three, three reasons. He says, number one, first, I thought he would come out to see me. That's what he says. I thought he would at least come out. So he took offense at the fact that Elisha doesn't even come out to see him in person. Secondly, he says, I thought he would... He would wave his hand over the area and you know, say some mumbo-jumbo and cure the leper. Isn't that what prophets are supposed to do? He wasn't prepared to go to something like the Jordan. In his mind, why can't this prophet just do his job? Because that's his view of prophets. They, they just have a job to do. Why can't they just go do their job, heal people, offer sacrifices, things like that? Thirdly, he complains, and this is the big problem for him, There are a lot of better rivers to wash in. He mentions the two rivers in Damascus. The Jordan was a muddy, stinky, and unimpressive place. It was totally unfit for a dignified man. And I believe that's precisely why God sent him to the Jordan. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that God's grace works. 
I'm convinced that uh, the Jordan River, remember this is the same place that John the Baptist also went to baptize people. The Jordan River with its muddiness and its stinkiness is a picture of the shame and the lowliness of the cross of Christ where every sinner must go to find God's grace. If you're too dignified for the cross of Christ, then you're not able to receive God's grace. That's why Jesus also went to be baptized in the Jordan, to be the first, to be the representative who went there in the first place for us all. The Jordan was muddy, stinky, shameful, but there the ground is level. Kings, commanders of the army, and little girls all are washed in the Jordan. Gentiles, outcasts, religious people all must go there. Well, everything about Elisha's message was an insult to a proud man like Naaman because it demanded that humbling of his pride. And that is the way that God's grace works. What God asked through, what God demanded through Elisha is exactly the same as what God demands in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news beyond belief. There is healing of a kind that you could never imagine. There is life everlasting. There is fellowship with God. There is forgiveness of our sins. There is entrance into God's kingdom, a far more glorious thing even than being healed of your leprosy. There is participation in the Holy Spirit. There, there are amazing, undeserved gifts of God's grace there, worth, worth more than anything that any man could possibly offer. But to receive it, God demands that we go to the cross, the lowly, shameful place of the cross, to acknowledge that we are as undeserving of His grace as any other sinner, and perhaps even more so. You think of the Apostle Paul, I am the, the, uh, the least of the apostles, the greatest of sinners. We are commanded to join the community of broken people who know that they have nothing to offer to their God but their humble repentance. To confess that we are nothing in ourselves. That's the gospel that we're called to go to. We need to be willing to be small and to be needy, humble people. We have to be these things if we are to receive Christ. There are no proud people in heaven and in God's kingdom. God hates human pride. And, and God especially hates spiritual pride. Because it's the most deceptive pride of all. It's the most dishonest pride. Spiritual pride. I deserve God's favor is the most dishonest sort of pride. Paul is clear in Romans 3. God is, is just in condemning us. There is no room at all for spiritual pride. God is the only one who can justify us, Paul says in Romans 3. And he does that because he wants us to know that none of us have any room, any ground for boasting. That's the gospel of Christ. Is that, is that offensive to you? It's offensive to me. It's offensive to every sinner. But it's the news that we need to hear. If we think that we, we at least partly deserve eternal life. Like Naaman seems to have thought, I deserve to be healed. He goes, he sends a, a letter, he gives some presents, and then he gets upset 
when the prophet doesn't heal him because he, he believed he deserved God's healing. But we don't deserve God's grace. This is the lesson then that Naaman has to learn. And at first we see it was deeply offensive to him. But here's the thing, and here's what his servants pointed out to him. Is that not a small thing for eternal life, for healing? Is that not a very small thing for God to ask? If you're you're not prepared to stand at the foot of the cross or to bathe in the stink of the Jordan, the healing that comes only through the gospel, cannot be had. And that healing is obviously worth standing at the foot of the cross or bathing in the Jordan. Who could possibly argue that that life everlasting and salvation in Christ is not worth admitting who we are, is not worth confessing our sin, our unworthiness, and humbling ourselves before God? Is that not worth it? and far and above worth it. Now I know, of course, Naaman's not thinking about eternal questions. He's just thinking about uh, leprosy. But, but his, his circumstance illustrates the point. Uh, would not a lifetime of being healed of leprosy be worth doing something as lowly as bathing in the Jordan? And, and that's the point that his servants made. Elisha could have asked a hundred Uh, more difficult things and a hundred times more difficult and and they still would have been worth it. Uh, Is his healing not worth this simple request? You have to admire the boldness of of Naaman's servants in in confronting Naaman when he's in the middle of of this rage Uh, and it worked. Naaman had to admit they were right. Uh, they, They confronted him because they loved him. They wanted him to be healed. So he does this. He goes to the Jordan. He dips in it seven times. And when he did so, the leprosy was gone. It was taken away. And his skin was restored, it says, like the skin of a child. Maybe that's uh, almost, I, I almost think that's, that's meant to be ironic. It's a little overkill for a military guy. Like he wanted to be healed, but probably didn't want the, the tender skin of a little child either. But isn't that the way God's grace works? When it comes to lost sinners, they become, in many ways, like little children again. Humble, small, knowing how little they know and how unworthy they are. This grown military man becomes like a little child. And it happens to Naaman, not just at the physical level, but at a spiritual level as well. It did take some spiritual humility to go and follow Naaman's, or follow Elisha's instructions. And it resulted in a new man, not just physically, but also spiritually. And that's the fourth thing we want to see in this chapter. When God reaches out to, to unexpected people with His grace, He brings about a total transformation. Notice just how totally Naaman was changed. This is what repentance looks like. Look at how he speaks to Elisha and compare that with how he spoke to him before. Forget all the the deference and respect that he was commanding of Elisha earlier. In the next verses, five times he refers to himself as your servant to Elisha. And consider the confession that Naaman also makes. He says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth 
but, Israel, but in Israel. The obvious irony at this point is that Naaman, the commander of the army of Syria, now gets this, while sadly the, most of the rest of Israel still don't. Now I want to just make a, a brief side point. You notice that Naaman came to God for physical healing. That's what he came to God for. That's what he wanted. He wasn't looking for spiritual healing, and he was too proud anyways to even receive it. But God used his need for physical healing to bring him spiritual healing. And we should recognize this is often, very often, the way that it goes. In fact, uh, this is the reason that God gave the leprosy to Naaman in the first place, so that that physical need would lead him to, to his far greater spiritual need. You see the same thing in the case of some of the people that the Lord Jesus healed as well. You think of the man born blind who the Lord Jesus says was born that way so that the glory of God could be displayed in him. As Christians and as a church, it is of course our our hope that the people in in our own community would, would come to God for the spiritual healing that we know they need. But oftentimes the, the opportunities stand before us in, in the form of people who need physical or mental or emotional support and healing. They don't realize yet that they need spiritual healing, but they do realize they need physical, spiritual, or emotional help. And those are an opportunity for us to bring them to, to the cross where they find the healing that they really need the most. That's why as a church we... Uh, support things like pregnancy centers, uh, like food banks, uh, ways that we can reach out into the, the, the day-to-day life needs of the people around us because just like Naaman, they don't know how badly they need their God. When they, see, when, when they receive healing from the church, there's an opportunity for them to meet their God. Having said that, I'm sure some of you are wondering about the very last uh, verses in in Naaman's story, verses 17 and 18. What do we make of the apparent compromise by Elisha? This is what I wrestled with and and stumbled over as I was working on this sermon. So, verse 17, Naaman said, uh, If you will not receive a gift, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Now if I was there, if I was Elisha, I would have said, this is nit gerefemird. The Lord is in all places in the earth. You need to work on your doctrine, man. You don't get how the Lord works. But that is not how Elisha responded. He said, he said go in peace. You can have these two mule loads of earth. It was certainly a strange thing for, for Naaman to request, and totally out of line with, with basic doctrine that every, every Yahweh-worshipping Israelite would have known. But Naaman was, was still working out of some of the cultural confusions that he had just come out of, where each god was sort of the god of each specific land. And so he figured, I need some, some of the land of Israel in order to worship the god of Israel. And that's a wrong understanding. But don't forget, Naaman had just made, just in the previous verse, had made the confession that there is no other God on earth but the God of Israel. So what we see is, here's a man whose God is working on him. He's on his way. And we see in Elisha this amazing patience with Naaman. 
This is just one of the, uh, the many cultural challenges that, that inevitably will happen when God reaches out in grace to unexpected people from other cultures. Uh, we feel inclined to correct Naaman. I think that's honestly what I would have done uh, to, to tell him, no, you're thinking about all of this wrong. Uh, and that's obviously true. Naaman was wrong in his way of thinking about God. Again, he's a grown man, but spiritually, he's a little child with a lot to learn. If, if you're new to Christianity, uh, you, you need to know this. In, in many respects, you're, you're like a child. You have a lot to learn. And I think these verses are here because the rest of God's people, including us, need to learn from Elisha here, which is to recognize that when God reaches out to people like Naaman, these details take time. God is able to work with people over time, to overlook errors in thinking, and, and, and even, even what we might consider very significant errors in thinking. Naaman will learn in time. We don't need to be purists and, and insist on complete and total correction immediately from day one. It's not that these things don't matter. They do matter. If Naaman's thinking of God as, as only the God of the land of Israel, that matters. He, that, that's a significant error. But at the same time, he was heading in the right direction. And Elisha recognized that and allowed him to go in peace. The confession that he had made was not insignificant. He did recognize there is no other God. So we need to understand this and think about this for ourselves as a church. If we want to be a place where someone could walk through our doors, come off the street, walk through our doors, and sit in our pews and hear the gospel in our midst, we will need to be a place that can offer much patience and forbearance with people that just don't get it all the way. Because that's the patience that God shows. Uh, there is a time to address all of these things. They will come with time. And, but we need to be prepared that that time does not happen all immediately. It's going to require also for ourselves recognizing that, that we ourselves have much to learn. That God is patient with us as well. There are significant errors in our lives and in our ways of thinking that God is working on that take time. Christ is patient with us as well. So we want to learn from from Elisha here and and extend that same spirit of forbearance and patience uh, with the immaturities of others. Uh, Otherwise, we will end up driving them right back out the door and making the church an inhospitable place for people who are just coming to know God's grace. Trust that God will work on them. And if the right opportunity for teaching comes, then yes, we can teach in gentleness, but not all at once. We need to guard ourselves then against a feeling of spiritual superiority. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. So it's recognizing that these things take time. That's true also for verse 18, which I think is even harder to swallow. Look at verse 18. Naaman continues, In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. Uh, When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I do this, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Let me just say two things about 
this request. And, and these are things that, that made me uncomfortable working on this text and probably will make some of us uncomfortable as well. But bear with me. Uh, I think there is a clarification that I will give that will help to put us at ease, but I don't think it will settle the matter entirely. In the first place, the same holds true here as it does in verse 17. Spiritual maturity takes time. It does not happen right away. And if we're going to be a church where sinners can, can meet the Lord and find that grace and healing, we are going to need to be forbearing. We do see that in Elisha. Uh, we need to be careful to guard ourselves against the tendency to be spiritual zealots insisting and demanding on absolute purity right from day one from brand new believers. It just won't happen. Elisha does not necessarily condone what what Naaman is asking. You notice that. He doesn't say, yes, you may. He simply says, go in peace, which seems to be saying, right now, now is just not the time to talk about this. You have much to learn, and I trust that God will teach you. If that answer chafes against you, and and I'll admit it chafes against me because that's not how I would have responded. I would have said, no, you can't bow in the house of a foreign god. Even if it's to help your master worship a foreign god, you're, you're assisting, right? You're helping someone else commit idolatry. That's the best case scenario, that he's not doing it himself, but he's only helping someone else. That's still not okay. And yet, Elisha says, go in peace. If that chafes against you as it does against me, we do well to remember the command of our Lord. Do not take the speck out of your brother's eye before you've addressed the log in your own eye. We need to be careful here, and I emphasize this because this has implications for us as a church. None of us are perfect. All of us are struggling with sin and sizable sin in serious areas of our lives. Areas where perhaps the Lord has been pushing on us for correction for many, many years. Before we come down heavily on someone like Naaman, and, and we see his, the speck in his eye as clear as day. We, we're not missing it. We see the problem there. Before we come down on him, we may want to take the time to consider how has the Lord been working on us. So take the Lord Jesus' command to heart. Don't take the speck out of his eye until you've taken the time to see the log in your own eye. If we love God's work in bringing lost sinners to Christ, then we need to be prepared to exercise this kind of patience and forbearance, even with problems that to us are as clear as day. And I recognize this makes us uncomfortable because we say, yes, but shouldn't we address sin where we see it? Yes, yes, we should in time with patience and with much humility, much guarding ourselves against spiritual superiority. What if the Lord Jesus demanded that same level of immediate perfection from us? Because he sees the areas in our lives that are as clear as day to him that we ourselves don't yet see. He's still working on us. And we ought to then have the same forbearance and patience with others. As a Reformed church, we, we love to you know, cross our T's and dot our I's. And, and that's good. But we ought to also be extremely cautious not to come down on sinners who still have 
room to grow, who God is still working on. Real life is a lot more messy, and hypocrisy is a lot easier to commit than, than we may think. That's the first thing I would say. Secondly, and, and maybe this will help to put some of us at ease, we should recognize that, that Naaman was not worshipping Rimen. What Naaman is talking about is his role as commander of the army. In the ancient Near East, it was, it was common practice that, uh, that certain officials would accompany the king of the land whenever he went to worship his god, and, and they would essentially act as armrests for him to rest on. So he would kneel down before his god, and he would place his arm on the back of his servant. And it was a way of saying that I'm subjected to my king. Uh, You can actually see a similar thing in in, uh, chapter 7, verse 2, where the king of Israel is resting his arm on on one of his officials. Uh, So so Naaman is not here requesting permission to worship Rimen, though he is allowing his master to worship this god. So there there are tensions here. There are problems that are not going to go away. And and Naaman himself recognized it. That's why he he brought it up. That's why he asked, may the Lord pardon me in in this matter. In a way, I I think a comparable example would be a a Christian baker uh, baking a cake for for a homosexual wedding. Uh, Most of us, I suspect, would would take the position that he ought not to do so, as as would I. I think that's participating in in the event. But here, Elisha, recognizing this, this man is brand new to the worship of God, simply says, go in peace. There's a time and a place we can talk about these things, but it's just not yet. So we should recognize and appreciate that verse 18 is coming from a man with a with a sensitive, a brand new sensitive conscience. He's a changed man, though not yet a perfect man. And as I reflect on that, I think, would that we all had the same sensitivity of conscience that you see in a man like Naaman. Sometimes new believers, even with all of their immaturities, can put us to shame. What does it tell us when when, when a grown man or woman converts to Christ from a life of of idolatry and and now wouldn't dare to do or say some of the things that we allow ourselves to do or say, some of these respectable sins that they recognize are no longer fitting in, in a Christian life? Would that we all had that same sensitivity of conscience? There's so much more that that needs to be said from this chapter. I'm almost inclined to leave the story of Gehazi till till another day, but if you'll bear with me, I'll be very, very brief. This is part of one story. We need to see Gehazi as we look at Naaman. What happened with Gehazi is, is directly connected to what happened with Naaman and to how Gehazi saw what happened with Naaman. How does, the question is, how does a, a self-righteous, spiritually superior person respond when an outsider receives God's grace? It's a question we need to think about. What we see in Gehazi is a man who could care less about God's saving work in the lives of others. In fact, it seems like God's grace to Naaman even upsets Gehazi. We see in Gehazi two spiritual problems. One is a deep sense of spiritual superiority. And the other is a heart that is very far from God and in love 
with the world. And if you think about that, those are two things that you would think could not exist in the same person. A deep sense of spiritual superiority and a heart that is totally far from God and in love with the world. You wouldn't think those two problems could coincide in the same heart, but they do, and I would submit it happens all the time. It's what you see in the Pharisees as well. The Lord Jesus said it Himself, you've already received your reward. You're in love with the world, and that's your reward. You've already received it. You can see Gehazi's spiritual superiority in what he says to himself in verse 20. He says, see, my master has spared this the word he said, this Naaman the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, he says, I'm going to be the one that's going to stand up for the Lord here. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. In Gehazi's view, it was wrong that Naaman this Syrian should get off so cheaply. As far as Gehazi was concerned, this man is nothing but a Gentile and an evil man at that. What you see is in Gehazi is that this idea that God loves people only of a certain nationality or a certain race, as if they alone deserve God's grace, which of course is, is a denial of the very concept of grace. To deserve God's grace would mean it's not grace. But that that spiritual superiority, which was Gehazi's excuse for going after this Naaman the Syrian, was really just an excuse to go after the thing that he really loved, which was worldly gain. The shocking thing is that instead of rejoicing with a sinner who had received God's grace, who came to know the true God, Gehazi was willing to put the honor of God Think about that. The honor of God and the spiritual life of this new believer all on the line for the sake of two talents of silver. And that's exactly what Gehazi does. Elijah had to insist on not receiving any money from Gehazi in order to drive home the point that God's grace cannot be bought. Gehazi was perfectly happy to let Naaman think that God's grace could be bought because he had no interest in Naaman's spiritual life. In fact, he was willing even to let Naaman believe that that Elisha was a liar. Uh, We know that by uh, by the fact that Naaman knew that Gehazi was lying. You can see this because if Gehazi's story was really true, uh, if, if there really were just two visitors and they needed two changes of clothes and a talent of silver, he wouldn't have accepted an extra talent of silver. It gives away the lie. Naaman knew that this man was, was telling a lie. And yet, Gehazi was willing to let Naaman believe that, that, that Elisha and himself were all liars, to distort Naaman's view of God. And, and he was perfectly happy if that would end up snuffing out Naaman's newfound faith, because he could care nothing for the spiritual life of that, that Syrian that Gentile, that stranger to the faith. He was in love with the money. And that's why Elisha rebukes him so harshly in verse 26. He says, Was this a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? In other words, Gehazi showed a total absence of perspective. He had all the wrong 
priorities. He, he should have known that the, the honor of God among the Syrians is so much more important than a little financial gain. And yet, he did not care. And when God reaches out then in grace to lost sinners, there's a warning here to those whose hearts, like Gehazi's, have grown cold to God's grace, who consider themselves superior. And I think there's things for us to, to think about there. How you live and how you conduct yourselves before unbelievers has eternal consequences for them, and it shows how much you value God's grace in their life. Since we're dealing with money here, there's an application to make towards uh, businessmen. It's certainly relevant for all of us, but for the businessmen in our midst, how you conduct business as a Christian has an impact on, on how unbelievers see God. And maybe you say, yeah, yeah, okay, but those men, you don't know the business world. Those men could care less about God. And that's probably true. You think of Naaman and the Syrians as well. Uh, these were not morally sensitive people. They, they were far from morally upright people. They were raiding, kidnapping, uh, and killing the parents of little girls and, and taking them off into slavery. These are not morally upright people, but God is able to reach them. That's what we see in Naaman. Do we assume that God could not do the same in the lives of, of the people with whom we conduct business. Now, of course, they, they have no respect for, for moral standards. If they're unbelievers, they, they don't respect God's law. That's no surprise. Of course, they, they would consider someone uh, weak or, or lame for having moral principles in business. That is the, the reality of the larger part of the business world. It, it, it's a ruthless world. But do we accept that and then live with that as if that's going to be our life in the business world because God can't reach those people anyways? Or do we say, as people that have received God's grace, we will extend it, we will show it, we will live by it, even in our contacts with those who, who we think could not possibly come to a knowledge of God's grace? Do we care about the spiritual condition of godless, unbelieving men and women? Or do we write them off as people that cannot be saved? Lord Jesus teaches us that God does work through our conduct. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, we need to recognize the Lord Jesus also lived in a world where people did not have respect for God's law. And yet he still says, they will see your works, they will give glory to your Father in heaven. And that brings us to the real question. This is the question for Gehazi. What matters most to us? The honor of God or the financial gain? Are you in love with the world as Gehazi was? Gehazi was in love with the world. He was spiritually superior and in love with the world. The, the undeservingness of those Syrians for him was only an excuse to be able to chase after the worldly gain, which is what he really wanted all along. It, it provided a convenient excuse to do what he really wanted to do. And that's why Elisha rebuked him so hard the way that he did. And that's why God punished him so severely. Gehazi was, was happy to let Naaman stumble and perish 
forever, if that's what had happened. Gehazi was fine with that as long as he got his financial gain because those kind of outsiders don't deserve God's grace anyways. That was, name, that was Gehazi's approach. The Lord Jesus warns us in, in Matthew 18, verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be cast into the depth of the sea. And so God gives to Gehazi the same affliction that he had taken away from Naaman, which meant in Israel also exclusion from from the fellowship of of the rest of the community. Lepers were to live outside of the city and outside of contact with with healthy people. And nowhere nowhere do we we read that Gehazi was ever, uh, that he ever recovered. Uh, We can assume that he lived with this condition the rest of his life. Sin can be repented of, and forgiven through Christ, but the consequences of sin, of sin may last the rest of your life. Part of true repentance is, is in acknowledging that that's going to be the case. So brothers and sisters, let's open our heart and our eyes to God's grace as He shows it to unexpected sinners, including, of course, ourselves. He sees through our strength to our neediness, our desperation for God. He gives us physical healing so that through that He may give us what matters far more, spiritual healing. He uses us, His people, to do that also in the lives of others. He brings about a a transformation in our lives that, that, that we become little children in much the same way that, that Naaman did. And this can also test our faith at times when we see it in the lives of others. It can test our patience, our pride. It can measure our degree of spiritual superiority. And as God does this, then He warns us that we would not have cold hearts like Gehazi did. But take comfort also, brothers and sisters. If He receives, if God receives the childlike faith, repentance, and humility of a man like Naaman, he will certainly receive ours and yours as well. Run to Christ. Run to the Jordan, as stinky and smelly as it is, because there at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, and you will join the community of broken but forgiven and humbled sinners. Don't be ashamed to humble yourself before Christ and to confess your sins and to join that company. The thing that we all have in common is that we know that we are sick and that we know who the doctor is. We know that our salvation is only and ever in Christ. So brothers and sisters, go to Him, run to Him, find healing and renewing in Him. Amen.